This episode of Real Tall Tales is a continuation from part one, a teenage gang leader turned lawyer. When he was just 14, David Lee Windicher dropped out of high school and joined a gang for protection with the street name Red. At 16, he started his own gang. He was arrested 13 times and spent over seven months incarcerated as a juvenile. Now, he's a lawyer fighting for those who don't have the resources to pay for justice. My name is Munir McJohnny. And I'm Cassandra Young. You're listening to Real Tall Tales. Did you win that first fight to get tapped in? <laughs> yeah. So um, after about 15 minute beatdown, I got in. I remember he said, all right, baby boy, you're good. You're in. And from that point, I was 14 years old at that point. I was consumed by it. I was consumed by it because it was so fascinating to me how much these people cared about each other. They spent so much time together. They looked out for one another. They made sure each of them had meals. And that's the kind of stuff I wanted to be around, mm. you know? And so I stuck with it. And at the age of 16 which was the age where I can drop out without any legal sanctions assigned to my parents. I did that against their wishes, of course. And during those two years that I was gangbanging, I was really observing my environment. I was more quiet than anything. And I realized that if I wanted to make money, I needed to get into the dope game. And it's not because that was the only option because, you know, like you said, you can pick and choose where you work. The problem that I had was I already had a criminal record. So applying for the jobs that a 16-year-old would apply for, retail, whatever, good luck, kid. You're already convicted of theft at 11. We're not going to hire yeah. you. Oh my God, I, I tried. being punished for something you did at 11, even though it was wrong, is still ridiculous to me. Tell me about it. Like it was years such, later. Yeah, and it, it drove me nuts because I was, it's not like I didn't try. There was a dark side to me, but it felt like the world forced me into mm -hmm. it. It didn't want to be bad. I remember sitting in the middle of drug deals and thinking, this is not who I am. This is not what I want to do with my life. Why am I sitting here at four in the morning on a street corner slanging dope? Because nowhere else would let you couldn't sling sandwiches right. somewhere. <laughs> Which I would have. I would have. And I, the system just didn't let me. And so I became this guy. But, you know, obviously it was all for a purpose. There was a greater right. thing at work here. And I think that that's what ended up happening. But so at 16, I dropped out. Is that when you started your own gang as well? I started, me and Joey kind of really formed our own like little clique in North Miami. And it was an apartment complex that we called Star Creek. And Star Creek had a front and a back that you could either go in or out of. So we kind of created a drive-through marijuana dope hole. And like I said, we were like Krispy Kreme, literally 24-7. We ran it like a corporation. We had schedules. We had paydays. We had chalk talks. I mean, we were motivating each other to stay awake and stay focused and make money. Y'all are entrepreneurs for all intents and purposes. Literally, we were actually, if we would have filed with the Sunshine State, we had a corporation, <laughs> we could have paid taxes on it. Yeah. You know? <laughs> it's like you're just in the wrong state at the yeah. wrong time. Mm -hmm. And we had a really serious operation. I mean, car would pull in, the watch out would whistle and let us know. Then the person would take the order, someone would take the money, then someone would drop off the product and they would drive off. And then... This is another thing that I think affected the way I saw the criminal justice system. At one point, the cops rolled up in there. And the initial situation was a little scary. But then the cops weren't that difficult. You know why? Did you pay them? They were mm. looking for money. And as soon as they made that clear without saying so, we just dropped the brown bag. They grabbed the brown bag. They took it. How do they make that clear, though? They walk around. They profile and they start talking. Who's selling dope here? Where's the money at? 
y'all making sure y'all not going to get arrested, right? I would mm-hmm. be arrested so fast. Like, <laughs> earlier when you were talking about how you're not dumb in school, mm-hmm. you could see, like, this guy was affiliated with a gang because he was all wearing the same color. I'm, like, thinking Mean Girls. On Wednesdays, we wear pink. Like, I would have no idea. Yeah. And this, too, I'd be like, are they bribing? I don't know. Mm-hmm. I'll just say no, officer, and hope they go away. But... So and, you, you guys just paid them off. Yeah, we just we always knew never to talk to cops, so we wouldn't say much. I mean, they basically gave us instructions without ever responding, and so we knew. Okay, they want the bag with the money in it. Okay, gotcha. And so every time they came through, there was a bag with money just for them. How often did they come through? Every couple of weeks. Part Same of, two guys. Yeah, LP loss prevention. I mean, that's what it, was. I mean, it was literally it started working no, that into your was, books. Yeah, it was a group of them. It was a large group of them, and that's what made it difficult. And oh, I imagine that many different people coming through that you have to pay off. Right. And you know how you, you'll have like APD, then Sandy Springs. Mm-hmm. So you, got, you have to have your head on a swivel because we had Metro, we had North Miami Beach, North Miami. And we're like, which ones are the good ones? Which ones are the bad ones? So now think about what that does to a kid, right? Some cops are good. Some cops are bad. To me, that made them all bad. Mm-hmm. And good and bad also is relative to what you're doing. Yeah. Like technically a bad cop takes bribes, but for you in that position right mm-hmm. then, that's one of the yeah. good cops. Oh yeah. And I can't tell you how many times there were one-offs where I would get pulled over and this is kind of funny. I used to have either braids and uh, long hair or dreads or gold teeth. So I always had like some kind of profiling look and they would profile me. They would pull me over and they would say, you've been drinking. We're going to arrest you for DUI or DWI. And I'm like, no officer, I haven't drank at all. I might have smoked some weed. I don't yeah. say that to them. Right. But I didn't drink. And they would arrest me. Or they would stop me walking. And they would say, where are you going? I said, none of your business. And then they would say, stop right there. They would handcuff me. They would search me. Nothing on me. Arrest me for disorderly conduct. I'm like, mm. what the fuck? And then here's the worst ones. This is the ones that used to really affect me. They knew, I think, when we were re-upping. Re-upping, I mean, like, getting our inventory back, right? And so they were on the prowl right around these times. They would find me with some cash on me or some drugs on me. Today's your lucky day, kid. We're not going to arrest you, but we're going to take this cash and this drugs. Mm. And I'm like, it's not my lucky day. It's your lucky day. It's a payday for you. Mm-hmm. I mean, I still see that now as a practitioner. I can't tell you how many civil forfeitures I've been involved in where my client's like, no, there was 450000 I'm sure. And I'm like, well, in the evidence report, yeah. there's only 250000 So that officer's having a nice Christmas. That's wow. just- and it happens all of the time. And so no wonder as a kid too, you're trained not to trust the justice system at all because the people who are a part of it, mm-hmm. not, and not all of them, I am no way saying every single cop does this. No, I don't yeah. want people listening to like put words in my mouth, but you are seeing the faction of the police force mm-hmm. that is not doing their jobs correctly. So how can you trust anybody in the legal system whatsoever if there are bribes or even like legal bribes, as I call them, like you get stipends for bringing mm-hmm. certain programs into the courtroom. You yeah. know, like you can't trust anybody because you've seen it in action. And, you know, when you get that perspective, it has made me a better lawyer because I, I literally trust no one. What created that turn, right? So you're doing this. What was it all of a sudden that you're like, you know, I've been arrested what, 13 times before I'm 19, I've spent eight months in jail. What was that point where you're like, I got to change this? Because that doesn't happen for everybody. Yeah, I think, frankly speaking, I was saved. I'm a Jesus follower and uh, it didn't happen until years later, but there were some more experiences. For example, at 16, I was facing 15 years in prison. I got arrested for retaliating somebody that robbed me. 15 years at the age of 16. At the age of 16, they transferred me from um, juvenile court to adult court. 
they deny my bail. I stayed in lockup on waiting trial. On the outside world, my friends went to go see the material witness, and they were like, listen, if you show up, he might go to jail, but you're mm. going somewhere else, you know? And so he never showed up. I was actually released. And that was one of the moments, Manir, that really changed me. Because when I got out, I remember my brother's like, I got you. I got it, bro. I took care of business, Red. And I'm like, took care of what business? And he has my beeper, my gun, money, and drugs. And I'm like, shit, this is not... Right. This is, you know, the pathway to hell is paved with good intentions. I want to get my family out of poverty. And here I am dragging into ruin. So, you know, that was one of my catalysts. And then I remember at 19, and I remember very vividly because it was April 1997. And I'm walking home. I went to go to the store to pick up a blunt. So I walked from my house to the store. And on that walk back, there was a car accident scene. It was an old scene. And I don't know if you guys are familiar with Nikki Beach in mm -hmm. South Florida. Mm -hmm. Well, the daughter of the then owner, she passed away there because a drunk driver hit her. Mm. And so I'm walking by and I have, I'm observing it, right? And the, the memorial, there's a wallet. And so I see the wallet and Joey and I are like, oh, there's a wallet there. And we opened it and we're like, but we didn't know that the wallet was associated with the memorial because the wallet was a little separate. So we opened up the wallet and we saw one of the girl's names and the ID and stuff in there. So we were like, shit. We put that back and we started walking back. So as we're walking back, we walk through this park, the back end of the school. So it's a school with a park attached to it. And we walk and all of a sudden when we get back to the street, Metro Dade pulls up and they're like, stop, where's the gun? And we're like, there's no gun. What are you talking about? And he's like, y'all stole a wallet and you have a firearm. Stop, don't move. And I'm like, I can't put it together at that point because I'm like, what is he yeah. talking about, you know? And then he says- like We're someone, just walking through a park. We're just walking through the park. We went to go get some blunts. That's it. And uh, he says, there's a firearm. You have somebody's wallet. I'm going to search you. Come here. And I'm, I'm being resistant at this point. I'm like, no, officer. Incorrect. I live two blocks away. I went to the store. I walked home. You're harassing us right now. He draws his weapon. And he's like, stop right there. And so he passes down. No gun. And I said, so where's the gun? Where's the wallet? And then all of a sudden it clicked. And I'm like, somebody saw us playing with the wallet mm. at the memorial, called the police, and that's how this happened. But that's such a random thing. Like, if I saw two kids with a wallet, I wouldn't call the police. Like, well, I just... I guess you're not a nosy person. You just, <laughs> just don't care. You got your own things going People on. People have been called the police for barbecuing in parks, right? So at this point... Mm -hmm. You right. know, there's, yeah. And yeah. especially because it was the wallet of one of the girls who'd passed away, right? You said right. so. Mm -hmm. And mind you, you know, we have the look, you know, we got our pants are sagging. I got long hair and gold teeth. You know what I mean? So it's kind of like they're profiling us right. to some extent. And so when he doesn't find the firearm or a wallet, I'm like. Yeah, where did the firearm come from? They just assumed. Yeah, they just, because that's what they always say. There's a gun. There's, we smell weed. Mm -hmm. Oh, you smell weed? No, uh, I was doing something else. That gives them the right to say. They always, they know what to okay. say, right? So. When he doesn't find a gun or a wallet, I'm like, all right, I'm leaving. I'm literally walking off. I'm like, I'm going to leave, officer. I'm, if I get shot in the back of the head at this point, it is what it is. I'm tired of dealing with you guys. So I start walking off. He draws his firearm again. He's like, you're under arrest. And I turn around and I say, for fucking what? And he says, disorderly conduct. You can't walk across the park at nighttime because that's a closed oh, field. God. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. You came to us with a wallet and a gun issue and you're arresting me. And I remember I sat in jail only for like 10 or 20 days on that situation. 
But I was so pissed off and I was so done with it at that point. I remember telling myself, when I walk out of this jail, do not look backwards because I'm never coming back to this shithole and I'm done with it. I'm going to fight the system. I'm going to do it. I'm going to start little by little somehow because this is not right. I'm done with it. I'm that, completely done. That's so fresh. It's such a technicality. And I'm sure there are police officers listening to you who hate those kind of cops that are like, mm -hmm. that is the most technical. Th like, that's a power trip at that point. It's, yeah. You're not actually arresting someone because you're trying to like save the field like that's a warning don't get off the field you can't mm -hmm. be there it's trespassing he's an ego maniac because now you didn't we're not your guys now you look foolish we got to arrest you for something right the state attorney thought it was so stupid cassie that they didn't even they didn't go forward on it they just dismissed it and i'm thinking but you sat in jail for 20, 20 days. days yeah i can't remember the exact amount it's in my book but it was like 10 to 20 days that's still a there. stupid amount of like that's as dumb mm -hmm. as an 11 year old getting arrested right. if i had a job it would be over with Right. Yeah. If I had a lease yeah. on a place and I needed that money to go pay, I would have been over with. And so these are the kind of things. And I got to the point where I was like, that's it. I'm going to fight this. I'm going to fight this. I'm going to educate myself and I'm going to fight it. And, you know, fast forward a couple months later, this is where we're at. It's 1997. It's like November ish. Right. And my then girlfriend says, hey, I want to get some ice cream. So I'm like, yeah, let's go get some ice cream. And we go to this little ice cream parlor called Delights in Aventura. I leave, I parked the car and I uh, left her in the car. Now she was attracted to me because she saw me beat the shit out of a cop in South Beach. And so she thought that was kind of sexy or whatever. I mean, so she was definitely not a keeper in that sense. Yeah, I was um, say, is that something you yeah. regret now? Yeah, and she's no longer here. So I always, I hold back some of the things that I would say, you know, because she was a great person. She just tough situation. But anyways, um, when I go to pay, I heard a voice say, aren't you David? And it just stopped me dead in my tracks. It humanized me. And the reason it did that is because for about six, seven years at that point, the only time I heard mm. my name David was from my mom, my dad, or my brothers or sisters. And so I was read this gangster. And when she said that, it just like, it made me feel like a person again. And I remember I want her to say that again. I want, and so, you know, imagine what that's mm. like, right? You've been living this life to survive your neighborhood that all of a sudden when somebody calls you your actual name, you feel like a person again. So I'm talking to her, trying to get her to say my name again. And then I'm like, oh no, little gangster Jen is in the car. And as soon as I have that thought, the doorbell opens and she's standing at the doorway, hands on her hips. She's like, stop flirting with that bitch and let's get out of here. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God, this is mortifying. You know? <laughs> so I tell this girl who her name was Nicole, I say to her, listen, I'm really sorry about that. She needs to take a medication. So she needed ice cream. So let me get out of here before she drives the car through the window. And I said, here's my number on a napkin. I would love to finish this conversation with you sometime. And I'm thinking she's going to never call me. I mean, right. you know, she's education oriented. She was well-spoken. She was really kind in the community. She was known for being friends with the nerds and being friends with the gangsters. So she was cool. So I'm like, she'll never call me. I don't know. God can only answer it, but she did call me. We talked for hours on the phone. And then I asked her, I said, hey, I would love to hang out with you. Can we hang out? And she said, sure. Um, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I would love to pick you up like a gentleman, but I have 19 cars and a suspended license, so I can't pick you up. I had 19 cars at that point. I didn't have financial literacy, so instead of putting money in the bank, I would just buy stupid stuff. 19 cars? Yeah, I remember. How I had, old are you at this point? I was, um, it was 1997, so I don't know, um, like 20, 19, late. Was you I get a car yet? for each year? Yeah, I would <laughs> kept buying. My favorite one was a 1969 Chevy Impala that I had completely decked out. But yeah, so I told her, I was like, listen, if you come pick me up, you can pick any of the cars. You can just, you know, we can go that route. And she laughed and she's like, look, it's nice that you're trying to do the right thing. I'll just pick you up. So I was like, all right, great. 
she picks me up the following weekend. We go to an Italian restaurant in Fort Lauderdale, have a good time. Then we go to a movie and we're watching this movie. And when the movie gets out, it's devil's advocate. So mm. such a good movie, you know, as a lawyer, you never lose. And we get out of the movie and she says, um, I'm not ready to go home yet. And of course I'm like, oh yeah. <laughs> and she was thinking the complete opposite of what I was thinking. She wanted to have a conversation. She wanted to get to know me more. And so I was like, what do you want to do? And she's like, I want to go to the Fort Lauderdale airport where the planes land right in front of the tarmac before it starts, there's a bus bench and you can sit there outside the gate. The planes will come right over your head. It's really cool. So I'm like, all right, it sounds really not like it's something a gangster would do, but cool. <laughs> and so we went, we did it and we talked for a while. I remember it was like from midnight to about four in the morning, we were just talking. And at some point she says, are you afraid to die? And I was like, man, that's not first date conversation. Mm -hmm. And um, I thought about it and I said, you know what, actually, who cares if I'm here? What's the point of my life? My life adds no value to humanity. I am not doing anything with it. I am a lost cause. I have 13 arrests. I've been incarcerated for eight months. I've been shot, I've been stabbed. I got enemies that will probably end up being my demise or I'll end up in jail long-term. What's the point? I mean, what value am I bringing to the world? And so she's like, wow, that's, you gotta stop being an idiot. Why would you live like that? What did you wanna do when you got older? She asked me. And I say, I always wanted to be an attorney because I saw what my dad went through. And then after going through the criminal justice system 13 times, I realized that my skin color played a role in the way that I was being treated. And some of my counterparts, black and brown, have serious sentences in similar situations, mm -hmm. but I'm white. I think, know? I mean, if we're being honest, that's why I'm so surprised sometimes that people calling the cops on you because... It's a total racial stereotype, but I'm like, you're white. I mean, looking at you, for yeah. those of you who can't see David, you're white. You have tattoos. I don't know how many you had back then. Mm -hmm. Blue eyes. I mean, ginger beard, ginger hair. Mm -hmm. And so for me, like, I'm just, your stories, I believe them, obviously, but they just surprise me. And if you going through this as a white man, we know the racial mm -hmm. inequality right. that exists. Like, I cannot, yeah, imagine as a person of color, mm -hmm. how much infinite, not to dismiss or discredit your stories at all, but how much infinitely harder it must be for no, someone of color. Please, you're doing us a service by saying that because that's the fact, right? The fact is that I'm being racially profiled. Yes, I did have long hair. Yes, I had gold teeth. Yes, I was hanging out with people that looked like whatever the profile status is, right? But I am white. And so- With what, Latino heritage. Right, right, exactly. So I am Hispanic, but I am white appearing. I'm, I look Caucasian, but I am Hispanic by nature. You know, it's kind of sad because that's why I fight for my black and brown counterparts mm. because, I mean, I know what it's like for them to be pulled over and be in fear. If I'm a black or brown man and I get stopped in a car and I have tattoos that are visible, I'm concerned that that cop is not trained properly and I could lose my life there. That's legitimate. And this has been happening way before smartphones. I mean, I can tell you stories you wouldn't believe. Yeah, you would probably believe because what you see now. But these stories, I mean, I've had shotguns to my head by police officers, literally in the back of my neck, foot on my back, face on the ground, shotgun to my neck because I'm smoking a joint in a park. Not because you were like mid-robbery or no. mid-jump, nothing like that, just smoking, just smoking in a, park. a joint. No nothing, just bop, 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 boom, you take us to the ground, shotgun to the head. What are you guys doing here? I'm like, is this really necessary? I right. mean, if we were in the Hamptons, would you do this? All right. Yeah. Or if you looked a little, if you had a different hairstyle. Right. Or for some people, a different skin color. Mm -hmm. So these were my experiences as police officers. And I remember when Nicole asked me that, I told her, you know, I wanted to be a lawyer because I wanted to try to get involved in doing something to make the system work the way it's supposed to work. I, I'm a huge constitution person. I love the we the people thing. And 
I always see that that way. You know, we are here for e pluribus unum, right? Out of many come one. And we have to learn each other, respect each other, and grow with each other. Not this. This is not right. And so, and she says to me, well, if you want to do that, you got to stop being an idiot. You got to stop gangbanging. You got to stop selling drugs. You got to put yourself in a position to do it. And I'm thinking, you know what? Let me just change the topic because this conversation is going nowhere, right? I'm not going to be a lawyer. And so I asked her, I said, uh, well, what do you want to do when you get older? And she says, I want to be a police officer. <laughs> and I'm like, you got to be shitting me. I have all the things that you're messing with me right now, right? You... And so she says, I want to be a police officer. And I was like, wow, I got to be born over again to get this relationship moving. And so I remember saying to her something and she said, she stopped me and she said, okay, I'll make you a deal. If you teach me the stuff that I can't learn in college about criminal behavior, gangs, drugs, mm. all that stuff, I will tutor you, get your GED, I'll help you get into college, and I'll make sure I can do everything in my power to help you become a lawyer. And I'm like, yeah, yeah you got a deal. Yeah. yeah, speed dial a little Jen and, hey, it's a wrap. Don't call me no more. You know? <laughs> How and did she know your name, David? People in the neighborhood. Okay, she yeah. just knew from so back she in knew. the day. So got we it. were, she was one year behind in school. So, you know, when you get the yearbooks, you see people's real names and stuff. I, I don't really know how she got it. Her brother and I ended up becoming really good friends. Um, but to tell you a little story about Nicole, which is amazing. If you look her up, she's the police chief down there now. She is. Wow. Yeah. Did you look her up? Yeah. I mean, she's the freaking police chief. So you guys kept true to your promise then? Yes. You helped her out? She helped you out? She did it herself. I mean, she, so to go back to where we were at in that day and time. She immediately starts tutoring me. And if we were going to be together, the only way it was going to work is if I did this. And I wanted to because somebody believed mm -hmm. in me. So, I, you know, I enjoyed the process. So she starts tutoring me. And on March 10th of 1998, I sat for the GED exam at Miami Lakes Technical College. And I passed with 155 out of 160 questions correct. Wow. And I'm like, this is wrong. You guys didn't grade this properly. There's no way I missed only five questions. And they're like, no, that's right. <laughs> and I'm thinking, what? That's amazing. I can do these things if I try. And so I went to take a CPT, which is a, a college placement test for people without SAT scores. And everything worked out great. Nicole's at Miami Lakes Tech. No, Miami Dade. Miami Lakes Tech is where I took the GED. She's there. She sets up her schedule. I set up my schedule for provisional classes. I had to take two and a half years worth of classes. And so we were aligning our schedules. We're doing lunch together. We're doing classes in the afternoon. And then we'd go home and repeat. And for three and a half years, we did that. So it was great. Everything was moving in the right direction. And then in January of 2001, she calls me and she says, hey, baby, I got an internship at a police department. And I'm like, that's awesome because that's what she needed in order to advance her career. And so I said, okay, great. Let's celebrate. Where did you get this internship? And she says at the North Miami Beach Police Department. And I'm like, wait, is that the same police department that deployed a helicopter mm. to look for me once? Why did they do that? So back in 1996, the case I was looking for, I was facing 15 years in prison. Uh-huh. I beat the crap out of this dude so bad he needed to stay in the hospital for like six months. And when the cops showed up at the scene, as I'm whipping his ass, they say freeze and I just run and they didn't catch me. So I went and hid in a park. I climbed up a tree. I realized the chopper was coming. So I got down. I ran out of the park and I hid in the shadows of the neighborhood. And then the next day, I, I mean, I was wanted. I, was, I had to turn myself in. But so it turns out to be the same police department wow. that... Um, wow. Yeah. So she's like, yes. And obviously blackballing, I believe is a real thing in this world. So I told her, I said, listen, let's meet up. And I don't know why we picked the most difficult day, but on Valentine's day, 2001, we called the relationship mm -hmm. We said the premise of it was to help each other. And I thought that, you know, it wasn't going to benefit her. 
And plus, she was probably ready to move on. You know, she was graduating college, and I needed to realize those things. And maybe that's the way it was supposed to be, right? And so we just had this emotional exchange about how we cared about each other, how it's been such a fun journey, and how we both helped each other a lot, that we will always make sure that be there for one another if we had to. And both of our dreams were realized, which is just amazing. So you really felt that your past activity would have a bearing on her career path. Oh, yeah. Basically. I, mean, I taught her all kinds of stuff. But I mean, like, I could understand that, like, if someone else in the department right. found out that you were together, mm-hmm. like, it could be oh, bad for her. Oh, I misunderstood yeah, what yeah, you yeah, said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, of course. I mean, these cops knew me by name. They knew me. They saw me all the time. I mean, I ran from them and got away more than they caught me. I got arrested 13 times, but, you you know, it sounds like I'm not a good criminal, but I was, <laughs> I've gotten away plenty of times. I mean, I fist fought them. But on the flip side, I do think like, you know, you have to look at her position as police chief and not, I mean, I'm not telling you to take credit for it in any way, shape or form, but wondering if maybe you giving her insight into like gang life and the criminal activity, like y'all made the deal. Like, did that help her become a more well-rounded police officer yeah. and help her on her journey? That's a great thought, Cassie. This is why you do interviews and questions, because that's a really good question. The answer is, I don't know, but I would love to ask her that because it, it would be we, interesting to know. Yeah, we've communicated. um not too long ago, a couple of years ago, when I first released the book, I went on NPR in Miami and her mom was just happening to be listening in. And I never told her that I published the book and I have a whole chapter dedicated to her oh, because wow. of how much she helped me. And so I, I'm more of a do it than talk kind of person. Or I don't even like doing that kind of stuff. I just, it is what it is. And so her mom just happened to hear me on NPR. And then I get, you know, this emotional phone call and it's her mom and she's like hysterical. And she's like, I cannot believe that, first of all, you still have the same number. (laughs) Second of all, you know, like you're a lawyer. How did you do that? And I was like, man, it's just a long journey. I was like, how about this? Let me send you a copy of the book and let's talk after that. And so I sent her and her mom a copy of the book. And then Nicole called me and she was emotional. And she's like, I just can't believe this, you know? And I was like, you know, if it wasn't for you, I probably wouldn't be where I am, Mm -hmm. frankly speaking, you know? We tried to have some kind of a friendship, but it's impossible because she's married to a police officer that has some history with me. Oh. You know, he's not interested in us being friends. Even my wife is cool about it. I was like, come on. You know? like, this is <laughs> yeah. such a cool story. Like, like my spouse yeah. bought in. Yeah, like, yeah. My wife is like, let's go down there and meet her and like have lunch with her or something. And this dude, he's a typical undereducated police officer. I don't mean that in such a mean way towards all police officers, but he's that guy like. Yeah, you know your fling from when you were a teenager? Yeah. We don't want him around at all. Come on, bro. Give me a break. Like, half of me, though, is I'm like, if I found out my significant other literally changed the life course of somebody right. else, I yeah. would be so proud. And 100%. then I'd be like, oh, y'all used to date? No, no, no. Yeah. No, you had way too much of an impact on their life. Ten feet, please. Keep your distance. And, I, you know, I, I can understand from hearing it that way, but I guess... Well, it's disappointing because it would be really cool for yeah. you to reconnect with someone who had such a big impact on right. your life. And That's her like brother an and I, Oprah reunion right there. Yeah, it would be, right? <laughs> yeah. and the fact that she became police chief. Yeah. I did what I was supposed to do. She did That's what she was wild. supposed to do. And the synergies that could be there if we combined forces. I mean, the Miami Beach Police Department, through a detective who I'm really good friends with now, she called me and she's like, listen. I need you to fly down here immediately so we can tour the police station with you. And we want to show you that we've changed our culture. We're not Mm. who we used to be when you're going through this stuff. We now require bachelor's degrees of our officers. We do specific training. We don't mess around with rogue stuff. And man, I have this amazing relationship with a detective down in Miami Beach because they brought me down there. I met the police chief. I met everybody down there. That is the kind of work that we need to be seeing, bridging the gap between community 
in law enforcement, we have actual real relationships. And that full circle too, the people you used to run from are now the ones calling you to come right, check it out because they want to yeah. show you how much that they've changed because you've changed as well. Yes. And you know, you bring up such a good point in saying that because if you look at most professional sports organizations, what do they do to hire their head coaches? They hire people who are former players. Mm -hmm. They know that someone who has experience in the industry is probably the best person to lead that team. Same goes for the criminal justice reform movement. You need to get people like myself that know how the system is broken internally and been on both sides of it so we can come back and fix yeah. it. We're not here to try to, what would be my gain outside of making the system better for everybody? Right. There is no financial yeah. gain. You're truly bought into it. Yeah, because I realize that you we're destroying and derailing lives. And unless we really do something about it, this vicious cyclical thing will continue. And you also realize that everyone who has become part of the system, they're not all just awful human evil beings who just want to wreak havoc. Like some of them are forced into it for protection, for mm -hmm. money, because there's nowhere left to turn, for survival. And those are things we have to take into account when we see people who have become part of the incarceration system, you know? Yes. I love that too, because I mean, that's why bridging the gap is so important. We have to be able to go into someone else's world, understand them before we can pull them out into another world. And the reality is, is that most of the people that grow up in those lower socioeconomic environments, they want to self-actualize. They want to mm. socially mobilize. They want to go from lower class to middle. And I hate the class system, mm -hmm. but you know, they, they have aspirations of moving up. And unless we help, it'll never happen. How hard was it to leave the gang, right? Because there's that perception that like once you're in, there's no getting out. There's no exit interview. Right. There's no see you at the reunion. It's kind of, it is what it is. The one situation that got me out was an individual after Nicole and I had broken up, I'm sitting in front of my parents' house. It's July 2001, and I'm watching the sunset. And I'm just like at this mental crossroad. I lost Nicole. My brother was going through some tough times following in my footsteps. Everything felt like it was my fault. And I was about to start college credit courses in August of 2001 mm -hmm. without my rock. So I was a little bit intimidated. And this dude walks up to me, and he's like, what's up with you, Red? And I said, nah, man, I'm just... Uh, I'm just thinking about stuff. And he's like, what you thinking about? And I said, I think I want to go to college. I think I want to be a lawyer one day. That's the first time that I said anything to anyone mm -hmm. in the hood besides Joey, besides Nicole, and besides my family. And he looks at me and he's like, you crazy, Red. Look around you. He said, white people don't want us in their neighborhoods and we don't want them in our neighborhoods. Get your head out of your ass. You're going to be a dope boy the rest of your life. Feed your family and be happy that you can even do that. And I just, I think I snapped. And I was like, dude, this right here is the reason why people never leave the block. They believe that they don't deserve better. Mm. They believe that the American dream is not there to be had. And so they accept their circumstances and they don't fight for more. Someone made a great analogy recently to me. They said, if you take a cup and you put a bunch of fleas in this cup, they can jump out of the cup. But if you take a cup and you put a bunch of fleas in it and you put a lid on this cup, at some point, they'll only start jumping halfway. They won't even reach mm. the top anymore. That's what the hood does to people. And at that point in time in my life, I figured it out. And I knew that it was time to get out of the gang and graduate. So I had to take all the valuable lessons that I learned at that point from gangbanging and leave. And so I told this dude, I said, I'm out. And he knew, like, my communication was, I'm out. Like, I'm not gangbanging no he more. He said I'm out. right there? Then I told him, there? like, I, I, yeah, in that moment, I said, I'm out. And he knew what I was talking about. And he says to me, you working with the police. 
And I'm like, you know who you're talking to? You crazy as <laughs> hell. Yeah. I'm not working with no cops. I could see that jump right. though, like because I'm sure other people too think I'm guessing that they have it better because you talked about the other kids in your school and how mm. you knew this one guy was in a gang because he always had the good clothes and the good car. So maybe for them too, they're like, I have the good life. Right. So for someone to quote unquote leave the, you know, good life, mm-hmm. you must be working with it. Why else would you? Those are good points. I mean, the truth is that it's sad that we have to think about it like that because that means that I'm now currently the exception and not the rule. Right. Mm. And so as long as I'm the exception, I will have fire in me mm. to make it the rule because I'm trying to find the next David Lee Windacher. I really am. There's a bunch of us out there. We just lack resource and access. And like even knowing that this is an option. Right. Like for you, like Mm -hmm. that moment for you is pivotal because that's when you realized you could escape that life and be something more. Yes. You know, you hearing you say that reminds me of all the fear I had, the fear of not knowing. But the fear of not knowing what could happen going forward as hard and fast as I could was less fearful than the fear I had of the alternative, which was going backwards, knowing what a bullet entering your body feels like, understanding Mm -hmm. what getting stabbed feels like, knowing what the criminal justice system will do to you, and eventually being either dead at the hands of a rival gang member, crooked police officer, or just doing something I don't want to do. Can you tell us those stories of when you got shot and stabbed? Yeah. I mean, when I got shot, we were, there was an apartment complex called Cloverleaf. It's now a bowling lane, I think, down there. And it was real ghetto. I mean, hood. Like, you don't want to be in there at nighttime. But that's the shadows that we walked in. And so the group running that dope hole got arrested. So since they got arrested, we saw it as an opportunity to increase profits by moving our operation into another location and expanding. So we did that. We did that until the man that ran that spot got out. And they showed up, it was like a long alleyway. And I remember this very vividly. And there was like three of them walking and they all had assault rifles. And they said, y'all got to move shop. And we said, fuck you. To people with assault rifles. Yeah, you can't be intimidated by firearms yeah. down that way. Because <laughs> as soon as you show fear, you're done. Which is another thing that I always say I'd learned in prison how to read fear in someone's eyes. Like mm-hmm. I can read if you have yellow in your belly based on the look in your eye. Now I don't want to make eye contact. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the guy said, y'all got to move shop. And we're like, F you. And this dude did not hesitate to raise that firearm and just buck. And it just sounded like 500 rounds were going off. And we, you know, we underestimated the situation. Obviously we had like two guns on us. These were three dudes with assault rifles. And so we had to run. And as we got, we ran, I got hit. I didn't even know I got hit until we got back to Star Creek. Mm. So we get back to Star Creek and we're rolling up a blunt. Like, wow, that was crazy. And we're rolling up this joint. I'm like, man, that's so weird. I got like, oh, I got blood on me. And then I realized that the bullet had gone in and out of my hip. It was a through and through. Yeah. And it didn't hit a vital organ, nothing. So did you go to the hospital for that? I didn't even go to the hospital. Because you would have to report. on it, wrapped it up, and that's it. Well, and you think about how lucky you are because if it had gotten mm-hmm. lodged in there, you would have had to have gone to the hospital, but then they have to report all gunshot wounds to the police so that I'm oh, sure it would have been caught. a whole, yeah. Mm-hmm. I would have got arrested for something else. I'm sure they yeah. would have arrested me for yeah. anything. They would have figured something out. This guy was part of a robbery in some other remote location. We'll just charge him with they, it. They would have just said you were trespassing on hospital yeah. property. You know, and it's funny you say this because I want to tell you the name of a guy who, just for the sake, of making sure that we're the things that we're talking about carry weight this officer here let me see if i have his name on there 
No, it was the Florida police chief who was sentenced to three years in prison for framing innocent black men. We knew we had these kind of cops out there. So we kind of had to be careful that you could be charged and arrested for something that you did not do. Mm. And this dude is one of those prime examples of what, what we were dealing with. You pull this article up. I mean, this guy got three years in prison for just basically saying, if you see a black dude and there's a open case, just arrest a black guy and just charge him with wow. it. Wow. And I hate, I mean, I'm glad that is a headline that exists because it means he got caught, but I hate it for those police officers who genuinely want to do good by the community mm. and protect and serve because I think it gives... It's hard because those headlines become front and center and it's sort of, again, people start stereotyping cops. I've seen it, especially in discussions, this is sort of on a tangent about Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. People think it's Black Lives Matter or Blue Lives Matter. All lives matter. And yeah, they Mm -hmm. all matter. And I think my favorite comparison is when you're saying like, save the rainforest. You're not saying, fuck all other forests. Mm -hmm. They can all die. You're saying, hey, rainforests really need our attention right now. Exactly. Black Lives Matter. You know, our black brothers and sisters need our attention right now. It Amen. doesn't mean we hate cops. It doesn't mean we hate any other color skin. It just means this is the group we're focusing on. Yes. And so for somebody like that, like, I'm so glad that the visibility is there and that the knowledge is being spread that this does happen. But I do hate it for other cops who are on the up and up and mm-hmm. are trying to make a difference. Right. So there's two things I want to say there. One, I, I love this criminal justice conversation because awareness is the key to change right and then two hearing you say all these things is interesting because i don't have a disdain for police officers you hear my story you might think i hate cops but the reality is i feel for them i feel for them because they're under trained they're undereducated, so they're being put in positions that are for failure they're being set up for failure they're not being trained probably not educated properly so when you see these incidents happen it's because they got put in a position to fail. Dangerous positions too, like yeah. ones that could take their lives. I mean, Good people mm-hmm. have to go home to their families, got kids, but we're not paying them enough and we're not investing in them enough. And that's why you see the stuff you see. Either learn how to be a better police officer and how to communicate with people or just don't do the job because you're not being paid a lot and mm. you're being put in compromising positions. So hearing that is so important. I mean, one of the things that we always advocate of is, you know, we need to educate our officers. We need to pay them more. And we need to put them in positions to succeed. Because a lot of the black eye that they are suffering now is because the people that are supposed to care for them are not caring enough about them. Right. And that's why you're seeing these kind of things. I mean, it's just so crazy to think about all of that, right? Now, from your previous life, mm-hmm. you've got one souvenir that you have kept. Yes. Tell us about that and why that was important for you to keep. Wait, hold on. Jog my memory because the brass knuckles. Oh yeah. So okay. So because <laughs> I He's still like, have. How did you know about that? <laughs> oh wait, not that one. Brass knuckles. I have my gold teeth too. Okay. <laughs> I do. I should have worn. You ever break them out? <laughs> yeah, I do. I just joke around sometimes. I'll put my suit on and I'll come down with my gold teeth on my wife. <laughs> She's like, "You're an idiot." And I'm like, "What do you think would happen if I show up to court, <laughs> court like this?" You know? I would love that. Yeah. I mean, I used to have a really long beard when we were on Hunted. We haven't talked about that, but we were on a reality show where we ran from the FBI and had a really long beard at one point. Well, you ran fake from the FBI or for real from the FBI? It was unscripted real. So it was, hey, you're wanted and you need to find a way to disappear. You have 28 days on the run. But you weren't actually wanted at that time. So it's a TV show called Hunted on CBS. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a TV show on CBS. And the reason it was called Hunted is because we were being hunted by the U.S. Marshals, the CIA, the Navy SEALs, um, you know, really smart, sharp guys that I ended up becoming good friends with. And we have these conversations often about y'all are wrong. They're like, no, y'all are wrong. And I'm like, 
listen, we don't have these conversations. We're not getting anywhere. So this is at least a start, you know? Did you succeed in hiding um, from them? So this is going to be public. So I can't say exactly what I want to no. say. On the show, we did not get away. But, you know, off air, I can maybe share some stuff that will not have CBS lawyers knocking <laughs> on my door. Fair. Um, okay. Bottom yeah. line is, no, you didn't get away. No, we did not Got get it. away. And, and but I have a hard time yeah. saying that because... You know, anyways, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> Just because the contract was like this thick. And yeah, I know sure. that the that's like, me for me to be sued is yeah. pretty significant. That looked like at least two Harry Potter volumes. <laughs> yeah, I was serious. And I'm like, listen, what do you guys want me to say? No, I'm not signing that. I want to definitely do yeah. this. Because they approached us. My wife approached them when she saw that this was happening. Because Hunted is a huge show in the UK. I mean, it's, but um, she's like, listen, you want to be on a reality TV show? And I'm like, shit, no, I don't want to do that. Then she says, it's to run from the FBI. And I was like, where do we sign up? Yeah. This? <laughs> so the premise is literally they get X number of couples. Then you mm -hmm. get actual official FBI, CIA, you know, U.S. Marshals. Yes. And you guys literally just need to outrun get away these individuals. Them. Yeah. And uh, if you like that kind of stuff, you should watch the show because it was amazing to do. It was so much fun. I'll never, ever, no matter what, be able to replicate the adrenaline we right. created there. I mean, after they cast us for the show, it was nine couples and so it was 18 people total, right? And we had 100 square miles. And it was the Carolinas, Georgia. They cut off South Florida. And I knew they did that for a reason. Because <laughs> I know that they would never catch us if they were giving us that. And then a portion of Alabama. And so they said, okay, you have 100,000 square miles. And they came down. All the producers came. And they said, okay, within 72 hours, we're going to give you a call. And you're going to be on the run. The producer will show up and he'll follow you. So I'm like, all right, cool. We got 72 hours. So I get to my office. I'm like, I got some time to do some emails. I can get some stuff done real quickly. My wife is making some spaghetti or something like that. And all of a sudden I see this white van pulling up to the driveway. And I'm like, oh, shit. They meant 72 minutes. <laughs> and so I see these dudes running out. And they're like, all right, David, you're on the run. And that's how this show starts to see that they're like on the run. And it, my face is like, I got caught off guard because I had everything ready that I had because you couldn't you really go prepare. Back, yeah. I had my mental stuff, you know. That's a great away message, though. What? I'll be back in 72 hours <laughs> on the run from the FBI. Yeah. They <laughs> <laughs> no, set us up so good. And um, we disappeared. And there were some rules that I didn't really like. Like one of the rules was like, you have to use an ATM. I'm like, what fugitive would use an ATM? Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, that's like a dead <laughs> giveaway to your location. Right. So, but the thing is like, one of the things that we were able to do is my wife is a PK, a pastor's kid. So she had to be pretty sly most of her mm -hmm. life to do like things that, you know, she wanted to do without her parents' permission. So she's very uh, capable of being strategic. So I, I call her. I'm like, babe, they showed up here. She's like, oh, shit, because they either show up to her or to me and we have to meet each other. And so I'm like, I'm on the way to come get you right now. And so I go get her and we have to obviously dump our cars. There's no way we can keep our cars. And so we have a, a burner phone and we call a friend of mine to come pick us up. And I tell this girl, she's actually my PR woman, Karen Jones. And she picks us up and I'm like, listen, we need to use the ATM. And she's like, what kind of fugitive are you? You know, I was like, just take us to the ATM right now. Cause I was like, they're going to know we're already here in this area right. within one square mile of our house. If we use the ATM here. It's a dead lead for them. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we go use the ATM. I'd be looking for loopholes. I'd be like, did you say with my card? Karen, let me buy your card. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. We did all kinds of stuff. We couldn't like, it's Hollywood. So there's right. certain right. like parameters you have to kind of adhere to. 
But when we use the ATM, I'm like, all right, let's go. We're going to start hauling butt. We're going to go towards Alabama, and we're going to start trying to disappear. Well, guess what? Car accident. No. I'm not even kidding you. And that was obviously the producers had to stop the show. They're like, listen, we're going to give you 30 seconds to figure this out right now because we can't stop them from hunting you. Mm. So we prepared for everything but a car accident within the first 15 minutes. And I'm like... And you had just used the ATM too, which is the worst. So now they know the area. Exactly. Yeah. Like if you had been are. able to hightail it out of the area, you would have been fine, but you're basically a sitting duck. Yeah, we gave us away, you know? And so we're over here on Piedmont by the Mercedes Benz dealership. Mm -hmm. And so when the car hit us, what I thought was going to be the end of our journey changed everything because the guy actually kept going. Mm. So he just hit us and left. So we pulled over. And Karen's like, am I supposed to report that? And I was like, technically, if you show up to the police at any point in time today and report this, you haven't fled the scene of an accident, <laughs> right? Because the guy actually left. And I'm like, am I even giving sound legal advice right now? I'm just going 100 miles an hour. Also, you have witnesses, and I'm assuming there was a camera on it. Oh, th that guy had no chance. If he wanted to go to court on that, I mean, he had full <laughs> the vantage points we had were everywhere. So we go, and we start disappearing, and the run really started. We ended up getting away from that, and these guys were so... Good. I mean, they were so good. So good. We ended up running from them on foot once. We got away from a drone. We outran a drone. Oh, you know, wow. A drone can only go so Whoa. fast. So, I mean, her and I, Emily and I, we were training like animals leading up to this. Because we're thinking we need to be running like six-minute miles in the mm. event that something comes up. So we were training aggressively. And there was a time where the drone starts flying over. And these things have thermal scanners on them. So oh, Wow. So if it picks you up, you're done. It'll yeah. just trace you all the way. And so we're running through the woods, and it's June or July, so it's rattlesnake season. And we're like, oh, uh -uh. my God, this is yeah. nuts. Yeah, and we're just running through there. But then a friend of mine who we called on a burner phone, we were doing everything through burner phones. He comes and picks us up, and we he's hiding in, like, a chicken farm, and we just disappear. Then a couple days go by, and we go to a friend of mine's house who I went to law school with, who they were surveilling. But we didn't know. I mean, they went that— there's a woman named Teresa Payton who I think was like the head of security at the White House a couple administrations ago. And she's running the show with the, the former director of the FBI, a guy named Robert Clark. So they're pretty smart. They're on it. It makes sense that they would surveil like your past connections. Everything. I mean, they took my book out and they had every single name in that book and they knew exactly uh. where those people were. So within, within their 72 hours, they were doing their work and they had every person. And every person that I, I was connected to, they were on them. So they already knew about Karen, and they probably saw the car in the ETM feed, and they, they just followed everything. it through traffic cameras. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And so they get, we get to my friend Brad's house, and all of a sudden, Emily and I are looking out the window, and we're like, you know, what's the coincidence of three black Denali's driving by just on a whim? And I was like, that's not a coincidence, babe. Why would three black Denali's be driving by? She's like, you need to look out the window. And I'm looking out the window, and I'm like, oh, shit. That's them. I mean, they were like, wow. Did it like trigger at all, like past fear yeah. of the cops, like from your childhood so, almost? Oh, no. At this point, it was a battle of the wits mm -hmm. because I wasn't afraid because I knew I couldn't get in real trouble. Yeah, you're right. like, I didn't do anything wrong. So this, this is, is the fun league. part of, yeah. yeah. Munir, that was my first question to him. They said, listen, we would love to cast you guys. I was like, can I get in real trouble? <laughs> and they said, no. And I said, I'll sign that in blood yeah. right now. Because <laughs> I wanted to take my experiences with them right. in the past and then now practicing law understanding how their methods yeah. and their attacks are. So I'm watching and everything is being recorded and there's the hunters on one side, 
the firewall, which is the CBS producers mm -hmm. and, and the fugitives, they could hear everything. The producers could hear everything from both sides. And so I'm like, okay, they might be onto us, but they have to see us. So in order for them to come into this house, they have to know we're in here to get probable mm -hmm. cause. Otherwise they can't come in here. Right. Fortunately, my friend Brad's car was in the garage. So I said, all right, we're going to do this this way. We're going to go in the trunk of the car and you're going to drive right past them. They cannot stop you. They don't have a legal basis to stop you. And we did that. We got in the trunk of the car. It was a rainy night. We drove out of the house and my heart's going 100 oh miles God. an hour, you know, because we're sitting in the trunk of the car like this, not knowing what's going to happen. And uh, we started driving and then Brad's giving us directions. Like He's like, all right, I'm passing one right now. All right, I'm passing another one right now. We're getting out of the community. There's one on the corner. He's like, I think we're in the clear. And we're going crazy in there. Like, yes, we got away. And later on, the producers tell us that probably never have another lawyer on the show. Because <laughs> I was like, if you don't have probable cause because you didn't see us, you can't do nothing. Right. Right. And they were pissed. I mean, these hunters were That's so hilarious. mad. Because we talked to them afterwards. Those are the rules. Those yeah. are the rules of real life. Yeah, so we beat them at that. And then we started messing with them. We started creating diversions. I had a friend of mine go to the airport and rent a car and make me a second driver. So immediately the mm. FBI, if you're a wanted fugitive, it gives you an alert because you're a fugitive on the run. Right. Someone puts you as a second driver in a car. It's an immediate NCIC alert. And they and were probably there like, this stupid dude. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I told him, I was like, hey, drive that car to like Spartanburg, you know, <laughs> South Carolina. We're going to be going to Mobile. And That's so, smart. Yeah. And when we get the funniest scene ever, when Kevin, so my friend Kevin, who I went to law school with, he gets to this rental place and he's dropping off the car and they rush him. And he's like, oh, Dave told me to tell you guys this is a ruse. <laughs> I would have loved to have seen their faces. That is hilarious. Like Kevin is so, like, he's such a he's such a personality that, you know, he was loving it. He's like, and, and maybe a diversion, too, I don't know, whatever. And so we did that a couple of times, and we ended up really messing with them, where we would, like, order Amtrak tickets from, like, mm. a making station, and they would rush this station. Or we would go check into a gym. With our little key fob. Yeah. <laughs> and so we were having a blast with them, you know. And It's amazing how many ways they can track you, yeah. though, too. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah. I mean, we got into a high-speed chase with them on I-20. Really? Yeah, it was pretty scary because, I mean, at one point we are like, all right, you know, even though we can't get in real trouble, we could die. Yeah. You know, there's always that. And that's crazy to me because, like, technically, if you're going above the speed limit, it's still breaking the law. Like. CBS mm -hmm. can't protect you from that, right? Yeah, they started getting mad at us because of that, because it's so funny. They were like, when we See, said... You, you, you would have been good at uh, yeah. figuring out how to strategize around CBS, because I remember we got the call into the car, and they're like, hey, you guys got to slow down. I was like, so what about the police officers? Should they slow down too? And they're like, well... You guys are in the lead. You're like the lead car right yeah. now. And, uh, you're like, but yes, but if we slow down, they're not going yeah. to. The whole point is yeah. they're going to catch so, us. Given what I was saying earlier about how things ended, you can imagine where this conversation yeah. went, right? Like, yeah, but then CBS. I was not easy about it. I'm sure the CBS lawyers were like, um, we're putting everybody at risk right now. This is a huge <laughs> yeah. liability. When we said you couldn't get in trouble, we meant with us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, hey, man, you guys know my past. And you know that now I'm being a fugitive with the experience of practicing law. Yeah. Did you guys not factor in the fact that I'm going to be a little difficult? <laughs> right. yeah. and, uh, I should probably not tell you about the fake passports I picked up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would have been. So we were thinking about doing something like that, actually. We had some good connections. And, you know, I don't want to. Yeah, you don't want to burn them. Yeah, I, I totally get that. Yeah. So, yeah. Or self-incriminate. Yeah. But it was a lot of fun. That was a blast. And, you know, to think about, like, where my life come to to that point, right? Like, this was in 2017. It aired after, I think, the first show 
the first episode was after the Falcons Packers NFC championship. Mm. So it was all over. People were seeing it. And the coolest part for us was when I say us, I'm talking about my nonprofit is that they highlighted the book. So we ended up making a ton of book sales. Your book, the American dream, his story in the making. Yeah, it's on Amazon. So, you know, they were highlighting the book because they said, I remember, I think one of the scenes was uh, he doesn't have a very favorable perception of law enforcement. <laughs> and I remember that after that episode, a bunch of people bought the book. We sold a few thousand copies and it helped us a lot because people started researching us and finding mm. out who we were, the kind of work we're doing. And because we're doing our work in the community, people started recognizing us from the show and it helped us open so many doors. So, I, I mean, I was always humbled by the fact that I came to this point in my life that now a compromised life that was looking at the majority of my life in prison is now trying to help people reacclimate. And it's because I did the right thing and I worked my butt off to get here. And now the world is, God is reciprocating and helping me help others. All your former gang member friends probably saw that episode and were like, you do that for fun now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. I was getting a bunch of them were texting me because all of Miami was rooting for us. You know, it was just such a cool part of, and the only thing that sucked is that Joey was still locked up when this all happened. But, you know, it was funny to think that because they're all like, dude, how did you do that? You know, how did you even get in this situation? I'm like, I don't know. You know, we applied for it. <laughs> we, yeah. we wanted it. First, I wanted to strangle my wife when she told me I'm going to do reality. And I'm like, oh, man, is it like some kind of Kardashians thing? Yeah. Shoot me in the face. Wife swap. Yeah. No, no mm. thanks. But yeah. So how do we end up getting there? Brass knuckles. Brass knuckles. Okay. So the brass knuckles are on my desk in my office. And the reason that they're there is because it's just a daily reminder that you know, people can change. And I used to use the brass knuckles as a method to make money, to impose fear and intimidation and people and get what I want. And it's sitting next to a gavel, mm. you know, and the gavel is basically the flip side of it, that you did change. And now you're helping people and you're reforming the system and you're even creating case law. So and it's just a daily reminder that it doesn't matter where you start. It's all about what you do along the way and how you finish. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's so true. So I grew up in Riverdale, Georgia, mm -hmm. which is, you know, famous for their gang violence and stuff like right. that. The high school that I would have gone to lost its accreditation. There's a uh, gangster disciples there. A lot of them. Yeah. So in elementary school, and I found this out much later on, my best friend and I unintentionally used to kind of traffic for his older brother. Mm -hmm. And he would kind of give us a book back, say, hey, go give this to my buddy. I'll buy you guys ice cream. Mm -hmm. And we had no idea. This is third, fourth grade. Right. And fifth grade, one time my buddy shows up to school like a week later, I haven't been in touch with him. I'm like, what's been going on? And that's when I found out that I had missed one. His brother had called us to, you know, do something. I didn't know. I didn't go. Mm -hmm. And his brother had shortchanged the deal that he was making. And my friend ended up paying for it. Mm. Right. And luckily we moved out. But to think like, had we kept going on that track? Because we didn't know yeah. what we were doing at the time. But anything could happen even as a bystander, right? Completely. But but where you take your life, just like you said, can make so many different changes from that. Yeah, you went from being near the mule <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to a The unknowing expert. mule. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's so funny, man, because, you know, that happens a lot, I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure that happens a lot. And it's, you know, it's one of those situations when you grow up in those environments, those things are just going to be a part of it. It's an integrated part of it, actually. It really, truly is. I mean, being a gangster, being a dope dealer, you grow up in certain neighborhoods, it just becomes part yeah. of it. I'm glad that you weren't compromised in a way that some... Yeah, I was bad. very lucky to not, you know, end up in anything like that because we didn't know what we were doing, but it very easily could have turned into a bad situation. Yeah, that's how kids get killed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you've got a lot of tattoos. Right. There's one on your right forearm that kind of stuck out that said paid in full. Mm -hmm. What is that about? You know, I shared with you that I'm a follower and um, I'm a very different type of Christian. 
I see things a little bit different in the sense that I don't follow the rules of the church and all that stuff. I am a more of a relationship-based individual. And paid in full is that Jesus paid in full mm. for my sins. And it's a constant reminder that there's a greater power here at work and that I need to be grateful for his sacrifice for me. The atonement to me is the greatest moment in our history because it changed everything. It allowed us to know that we can be redeemed. And so I put this here to just remember that because he did what he did for me, I have to do that for others now. And your organization, Red, is doing some phenomenal things and you've got some good news mm -hmm. that's coming up as well. So if you wanted to take a moment and share that. Yeah, uh, so exciting. I mean, first and foremost, we've had support from Google, which is amazing to think Google helps us. Wow. LexisNexis uh, has supported us. And now we are now going to collaborate with the Atlanta Falcons on social justice. You know, it's just amazing to think about, you know, Colin Kaepernick took a knee. It ensued a bunch of different things. The players coalition came from that movement, not necessarily from what his act was, but it just kind of had, hey, we need to do something about this. And so the players coalition is now working with the Arthur Blank Foundation. The Arthur Blank Foundation is working with us. We recently did a know your rights panel with the players. And so we had the players and our program participants get together, have dinner. And what they did was they asked a bunch of judges, prosecutors, probation officers, and officers questions about the law and help bridge that gap. The cops are people that need to go home. The judges have to go home. The people in the community are not all thugs. And so this relationship now is going to change a lot of different things for us because getting a strong opinion leader, an influencer like that involved, it's huge. Mm -hmm. We know that our taxpayers will benefit from this, but the community as a whole is going to see some really amazing things because of this relationship. That's phenomenal. Congratulations. And thank you. Thank you again so much for being one of those individuals who truly leverages their power, their history, their background to make so much good and change in the world. Uh, I always think about impact over income. You only need so much to survive. It doesn't go with you when you're gone. So leave something behind for others. I like that. Impact over income. You can get David Lee Winditcher's book, The American Dream, His Story in the Making on Amazon. You can also check out his nonprofit, Red Rehabilitation Enables Dreams. If you guys want to find out about our restorative justice program and the curriculum that we implement in the courthouses here in Georgia, you can go to our website. It's stoprecidivism.org. And just for the sake of those who are not spelling me champions, it's R-E-C-I-D-I-V-I-S-M, stoprecidivism.org. We'd love for you guys to check us out. Thanks for awesome. joining us today. Thank you for having Thank me. Thank you. Coming up on the next episode of Real Tall Tales. You go to a foreign country to see the sights, taste the local cuisine, and lose yourself in the culture. But what if immersing yourself in those traditions almost kills you? Our next guest knows all too well what it's like to feel death breathing down the back of your neck, quite literally. And as we start to run, I slip and I hit uh, the raised cobblestone and I look back and the bulls are right there. He'll tell you how he narrowly escaped being impaled and scraped off the cobbled streets of a famous town in Spain. We'll see you next week with a new episode, but in the meantime, don't forget to subscribe and please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcast. And don't forget to follow us on social at Real Tall Tales Pod on Instagram for more on our guests.